these are chapters as we continue on in Joshua that give to us the division of the land among the 12 tribes of Israel as they've now come into the Canaan land. They fought some military campaigns. They've conquered some different territories, really broken the power uh, of a lot of the enemy territories. And now Joshua, together with Eliezer, as well as with a number of the heads of the fathers of the different tribes of Israel, are now dispersing uh, these different territories uh, to the different tribes of Israel. Uh, we saw particularly last time this began with the tribe of Judah, which chapter 15, as we pick up, will begin to describe some of the boundaries and territories. But remember, particularly the really great story we saw last time of this man from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the other of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who were extremely faith-filled men. They had followed the Lord wholeheartedly uh, when they went and spied out the land 40 years ago and believed that God was going to work on their behalf and that they should have followed the Lord. Of course, the other 10 spies uh, brought a discouraging report that caused the hearts of the people to melt. And because of that, uh, the greater number uh, of that prior generation has now died off. But Joshua and Caleb... Uh, two of the older generations surviving and, and believing that God was going to do this. And if you weren't here with us last time, the end of chapter 14, just this really beautiful story before the whole tribe of Judah begins to receive their inheritance. Right away, Caleb steps forward to Joshua and says to him, look, I may be 85 years old today, but I remember the promise that God gave me 40 plus years ago when we came into this land the first time and I'm just as strong today as I was back then and uh, his faith had grown and the vigor and vitality of his life no doubt was directly connected not to his physical health. But really, it was directly connected to his spiritual well-being. And, and it's very interesting to see how uh, when a person is right with the Lord, how that really does affect their, just the entirety of their whole life. Now, by the same token, I think we would all agree. I know I have seen before, perhaps you have witnessed before. In the other side of that, I've seen people who don't follow the Lord. Uh, they do the exact opposite. And have you ever looked at someone and, and you kind of just can tell, boy, they've lived a really hard life. And they almost look older than what they are, and they seem worn out and burnt out, and they may be honestly uh, looking 20, 30 years older than what they do and may have even abused their body in such a way because I'm not following the Lord. It's the exact opposite. They just Life has been zapped out of them because of the ways they've lived in rebellion to God's will and God's plan. Well, Caleb is a, is a picture of the exact opposite. That at 85 years old, he still wants to serve God. He's still asking for mountains to conquer and giants to face and believing that God is going to work. And he says, look, give me that mountain territory. He told Joshua, before you give the tribe their land, God gave me a promise. Give me that mountain territory. He said, it just may be that the Lord will be with me and I'll be able to drive them out. And it tells us that Joshua blessed him for that. Joshua blessed his faith and his desire to take a venture of faith in the things of the Lord. And I think, again, Joshua is a good picture of Jesus because when we take ventures of faith, Jesus wants to bless that. Jesus wants to bless when we're willing to take steps forward for him and pursue the things of God in our lives. And it's never too late to serve the Lord. And Caleb 
is a great example of that. So Caleb has received, it seems, his uh, allotted territory to go and pursue. Though there would be giants there, he was willing to go and conquer that mountain territory and face those giants. And I, I re-establish this reminder with you because as we go into the next chapter ahead, we're going to see the result of what Caleb desired in chapter 14 come to pass and how God does honor what he said there as he took that step there in, in the 14th chapter we looked at last time. So pick up with me there in chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to begin to look at the different territories. And again, as I said, I hope you have your, your map handy there because you can reference visually some of what's being described in a lot of these little territories and details about borderlines where rivers are and city limits are and geographic territories and mountain ranges. You can kind of see it a lot more clearly by looking at the map. So the first territory we see was allotted to, it says, verse 1 of chapter 15, this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah. According to their families, the border of Edom at the wilderness of Zin, uh, southward was the extreme southern boundary. Now that helps there, verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. Judah was in the extreme southern boundary. Again, if you kind of look upon your map to the left there, we're on the, the other side of the Canaan now, the nine and a half tribes that, are, that went into the actual land. Uh, separate from the two and a half who chose to remain outside. So we'll be looking predominantly at the left side of your map there in front of you. And you notice down to the south, a large area, the extreme southern boundary of Israel as we know it today, that Judah occupied the majority of that. And you'll see right within Judah, Simeon was actually enclosed within the territory of Judah. We'll talk more about that when we get to them. But really, the, just the large area of Judah and accompanying uh, you know, Bethlehem, Hebron, some of these areas, you can see pretty much the whole border of the Dead Sea uh, over to the Mediterranean. And really, again, remember when the, ultimately Israel divides in the southern and northern kingdoms during the time of the, the kings when there's a, a, a divided kingdom, that Judah really becomes the name and the encompassing area of the whole southern kingdom. And you can see quite a large land area was given to the tribe of Judah. It says verse 2, their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea. Again, that would be the Dead Sea from the bay that faces southward. It went to the southern side of the ascent of Arakabim, passed along Zin and ascended to the south of Kadesh Barnea, along to Hezron, went up to Adar, and went around to now, again, many of these territories, they are ancient uh, areas. Many of them don't even exist. A lot of what's being referred here in the way that we know them anyway, as far as the current modern names of these territories. So as I said, it, this is where a map really helps because if not, to try and find and reference these areas would just be uh, extremely difficult. Uh, but what's being described here basically in chapter 15, as you follow all the way down through verse 12, uh, is the boundary lines of Judah, the, the southernmost area, the southern tribe of Israel. Verse 12 tells us their western border was the coastline of the Great Sea. That'd be the Mediterranean. You see to the far left there. And this is the boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their families. Now, uh, chapter 15, verse 13, take note with me there. Now, Caleb, remember who we just saw last in chapter 14, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. And you can see right where Hebron is there uh, on your map in Judah's territory. 
And look at verse 14. This is the beautiful thing here. This reminds us God honors faith. Because look what it says there, verse 14. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak. Remember, these were the descendants of the giants. So these are giant-like people. He drove out three sons of Anak, Shishai, Ahiman, and Timai, the children of Anak. Now, why do we point this out? Because these were the words of Caleb in chapter 14. Let me remind you of them. Caleb said, Now therefore give me this mountain which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim, the giants were there in the cities, were great and fortified. And then his words of faith, It may be that the Lord will be with me. And I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. So the heart of Caleb, the spirit of Caleb was a spirit of faith. And he says, listen, I know those are fortified cities. I know it seems like those territories are unconquerable. It seems like that there's no way because there are giants there, giant obstacles. But his spirit of faith within him said, you know what? But I want to give God a chance to work. I'm willing to take a step of faith and, and, and it may be, he says, that the Lord will work for me and I'll be able to drive them out. It may be that the Lord will help me to drive them out. And we come now to chapter 15, verse 14. We read, Caleb drove them out. He did it. God honored his faith. God honored his step of obedience. And the power of the Lord was coupled together with his willingness to believe God and to give God a chance to work. And he took a step forward in faith and God honored that. And he drove out that area. Three different giant-like individuals were driven out of that area and he occupied it. And again, just a good reminder for us. Don't ever look at some obstacle or circumstance or situation or even maybe some perpetual enemy in your life or maybe even some enemy of your flesh. Maybe it's your temper or a struggle with lust or some life-dominating habit or bitterness and, and look at it as, look, that is just too entrenched. Listen, do not ever lose the spirit of faith in Caleb that would always still say, look, it may be that the Lord will be with me and help me to drive this out and continue to have a spirit of faith because by saying to the Lord, Lord, it may be that you'll work on my behalf and your power can help me do this. God loves to honor that. God loves a chance to show off if you give him an opportunity, if you catch my drift. For his glory and for his purposes, God loves to show the right arm of his power and to, to demonstrate his strength in situations to drive out maybe habits or sins from our lives or things that were perpetual enemies and to give us the victory and to, to take away things that hindered and allow us to go in and experience his will and to occupy the possessions and blessings that he wants to give to us. So Caleb, what a great story he presents to us. Now, I want you to notice something that's beautiful about Caleb is this man's spirit of faith. And again, here he is 85 years old. Oh, what can I do at 85 years old? Well, he was obviously doing, number one, a lot still. He didn't retire in serving the Lord. But even more than that, this is why we need Caleb's, because Caleb inspired the younger generation. And in the next verses that we're going to read, we're going to see that uh, his son-in-law, his daughter, they have the same attitude of faith that he does because no doubt they were inspired by his faith and that 
brought inspiration to encourage them to have a spirit of faith and to step forward and to serve God as well. And, and, and please hear me. This is why we need the older generation, however you want to stagger that, you know, uh, this next generation and then above that generation and the next layer above that because by being willing to still be, you know, trusting the Lord and taking steps of faith and serving the Lord, that inspires those who are looking at us. And we need those who are going to invest in the next generation and to encourage them. Listen, follow my example, follow my lead. And this is what we see happening. The next generation in Caleb's family serves the Lord passionately because he served the Lord passionately. They had faith and believed great things and were willing to try things and take steps forward probably because they had learned that by what they saw in Caleb in their family. Verse 15 says, Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debir, Formerly, the name of Debir was Kirjath-Sephir. And Caleb then said, He who attacks Kirjath-Sephir and takes it to him, I will give Aksa, my daughter, as a wife. So Athiniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, as a wife. So Caleb, he now puts forth a challenge to others who are around him and he says look we should take that territory too and he says i'll tell you what whoever has the courage to take that step of faith to go conquer those people to fight those people and to engage in battle whoever's willing to follow my lead and do that and prove himself worthy he says i'll reward them by allowing them to be the one to have the the privilege to marry my daughter and and he offers this opportunity to which this young man of othniel steps forward and pursues the opportunity, proves himself worthy, and as a result, not only takes the territory and receives uh, Caleb's daughter as a wife for himself, but even more than that, take notice of this name, Othniel, because guess who Othniel becomes? We'll see, not too many chapters from now, Judges chapter 1, he becomes the first judge in the land of Israel. So again, Caleb not only inspires him to go and fight one battle, this young man actually rises to a place of leadership above and beyond even where Caleb was. And like a good coach, a good coach will always train his players to supersede even beyond what they're able to do. That's what a, that's what a, a coach does. He draws the best out of people. And spiritually, this is what we want to do. We, we want to be those who inspire and set an example for others who are coming up behind us who... who serve God to their fullest potential. And Othniel ends up actually becoming the first judge in the land of Israel during the time of the judges after Joshua dies. And I love the beautiful example, quite honestly, if you have daughters here, I think there's something beautiful set forth. Uh, as Caleb says here, whoever goes and conquers that territory and takes it, him I will give my daughter as a wife. I like that because I like the fact that there, there's this understanding of a, a father and a connection and a relationship with his daughter, that there's this stewardship, that you don't just take my daughter as your wife. You prove yourself worthy. And to this day still, even in a non-Christian setting, what do we still do very traditionally? I've performed many, many, many wedding ceremonies with Christians, with people who are the furthest thing from Christian who just are looking for somebody to marry him. And, and even in settings that aren't per se, even among believers, we typically traditionally still have what? A father walk his daughter forward. And then we usually open the ceremony by saying, who gives this woman in marriage today? 
But again, who gives? Gives. The idea is this understanding of what I have been in her life for all these years, her protector, her provider, her support system, her, her counselor, her comforter, her, her companion to give her healthy love and affection and all the things that a father does. I am now giving you this opportunity by transitioning her and stewardship over to you and you better do the same or we'll come after you. No, we don't say that, but, but I have three daughters, so I think that way. But, but I like this because the idea here is, is what is Caleb doing? He, he's setting a way for Othniel or for any young man to prove his worth. He's, he's not making it an easy thing. He says, look, I'm going to give you, this is a way for some young man to prove his worth, to prove his worth. That he's worthy of having my daughter as a wife and having that opportunity and, and, and that giving over of her life into his life where he might then assume that role of being her provider, being her protector, being the one who supports her and serves her and takes care of her even as her father did. And I think it beautifully demonstrates, again, this is a, what our young men should recognize yeah, prove yourself worthy. Prove yourself worthy to that father out of respect and to that young lady that you would demonstrate to her. And I'll tell you, one of the best things we can do as fathers of daughters is to set the bar really high. Because then it makes all the guys look like bums. And, and so that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because then there becomes that understanding of, hey, yeah, it, it shouldn't be easy for him. It shouldn't be. There, there should be this pursuit. This is what a young man should do. He should have a sense of, this is an honorable thing. I, I should pursue this woman. I should prove my worth to her, how I treat her, how I care for her, demonstrate to her, and demonstrate to, again, out of respect to the, to the family that she's been a part of, listen, if, if, if God gives her to me as a wife, I, I will take care of her. I will treat her properly. I will give to her everything you have and above and beyond that if I have the privilege to be able to, to have her as a wife. So I just I find this very beautiful that the scripture gives this picture and this analogy here. He says, whoever does this proves himself courageous, a, a man of God setting forth in these ways his worth. He says, I'll give her him my daughter as a wife. So verse 18, Caleb gives Othniel, Axa, his daughter as a wife. And notice now, look at the spirit as well of his daughter, Caleb's daughter, because she was living with Caleb as a father, this man who wholly followed the Lord. He was a man of faith, a man of obedience to God, a man who believed the promises of God, lived by the word of God and wholly followed the Lord. Look, look at her temperament. It says, verse 18, now it was so when she came to him, that's first of all, to her husband, Othniel, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Now, she says to her husband, listen, since it's our wedding, ask Pop, ask my dad if he'll give us, he's a giving man, and, and he's conquered a lot. Ask him if he'll give us a field. We're going to need a field. So she persuades her husband, Othniel, to ask his father-in-law, her dad, for a field for them to begin to start out their life together. And I like that. She persuaded her husband to ask the father for a field. You know, women do indeed have a very strong power in the area of persuasion. And I think this is just part of the marital dynamic. You know, women have an incredible power of influence. Influence. 
And that can be used for the good and that can be used for the bad. But many, many men have become the great men that they have because they have a wife that is there by their side behind them who is persuading and influencing them to take steps forward, maybe to take you know, a, 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 a step of faith at times, you know, persuading, listen, just what do you have to lose? Take a step. Ask my father for a field. And, and this picture of influence of a wife, persuasion in, in a beautiful way, ladies, just you have an incredible power. You can use it for a very damaging effect or you can use it for a very beautiful effect. The power of influence is an incredible, incredible thing that happens in the marriage relationship. So she says, persuade, uh, she persuades him, ask my father for a field. And then she, it says, verse 18 going on, dismounted from her donkey and came to Caleb, her own father, and said, and he said to her, what do you wish? Boy, that's a nice wedding gift, huh? What do you wish? She answered, give me a blessing. Since you've given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So she comes to her father now and he says to her, what do you wish, dear? What, what do you want? What, what can I do for you as your father? How, how can I uh, you know, supply whatever is you need? What, what is, what's on your heart? And she right away with an attitude of faith, she says, I want a blessing. <laughs> I want a blessing. She says, you've given me land, but, but I need water so my crops can be fertile and so that things will be able to be you know, productive and fruitful. So she says, I need a water source. So she says, you've given us land, but will you also give me springs of water? And notice, good thing she asked in the plural because she got what she asked. You have not because you ask not. And she asked and it says that she got upper springs and the lower springs. So not only did she get what she asked for, but she got above and beyond what she asked for, the upper and the lower spring. She got multiple sources of water. And of course, as you look at this, again, the generosity of Caleb as the father, her spirit of faith, which she had learned from her father. She's, she's asking, she's believing that he'll do this for her because of the relationship and uh, the temperament that, that she has trusting her father and believing in his goodness and his generosity. This, of course, becomes a beautiful picture uh, of our relationship with the Lord because the Bible says that we're to relate to God like a father. In fact, I encourage you read passages like Matthew 7 verses 7 to 11 and Luke 11, 9 through 13 because there Jesus talks about this importance of that we should not be afraid to come to our father knowing he's a good father and to ask. Jesus says in those passages, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Whoever asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened unto you. And he says, which of you, if your son asks for a loaf of bread, is, is going to give him a stone? And then Jesus goes on to ultimately say in those texts there, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? And again, the parallel there, just a human's, you know, an, an evil, sinful, weak human parent, human father, we're imperfect, but yet the love we have towards our children, that we want to bless them, we want to be kind to them, we want to be generous and giving, we would do whatever we could for them. And, and Jesus uses that as a picture to argue from the lesser to the greater. He says, if you have that heart as a human father, and you're imperfect and selfish and flawed. You're an evil human father. He says, how much more will your heavenly father, 
perfect love, perfect righteousness, perfect wisdom, all generosity and goodness, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him, who aren't afraid to trust His goodness and say, Lord, would you bless me? Or would you give me a blessing? Is it wrong to ask that? My kids ask me for what I would call a blessing once in a while. <laughs> and they get it quite often too. And, and so for us to understand the kindness, Lord, would you bless me? Lord, would you just bless my life or bless this area of my life? And Lord, w would you give me a, a blessing? And, and you can determine how you want to bless me, but Lord, would you, would, I'm just asking, would you bless me? Would you bless my family? And here she asked for what? Springs of water. Jesus in Luke 11 in a very similar passage there, says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And what the springs of water picture in the Bible typically, it, it pictures the springs of eternal life. John 4, Jesus talks about living water springing up that quenches our thirst. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his innermost being shall go forth rivers of living water. And he spoke that of the Spirit and his ministry. So again, if we're going to ask for a blessing, certainly that's, I think, the best blessing we ought to ask for. Lord, uh, w w would you give me more of your spirit? I, I pray that you would just pour out the upper, the lower springs. Lord, just spring forth a a a an outpouring of your spirit upon my life. Bless me with a fresh work of your spirit. And I believe God wants to do that. And he says that he will do that if we just ask. It's something that he wants to do out of his goodness. He wants to pour out his generous spirit upon our lives to bring times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Well, verse 20 then down through the remainder of the chapter describes the different, verse 21, notice the city limits of the tribe of Judah. And again, all these territories are the names of the different city limits and the boundaries. If I can draw your attention over to verse 63 at the end of the chapter, it says, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Israel, excuse me, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So notice, this was one of the things that the Bible seems to set before us as a weakness or a flaw. Even among some of the different tribes as they were conquering and taking their territories, it says here that the Jebusites were not able to be driven out of the territory that was supposed to belong to the tribe of Judah, to the people of God. And now, why couldn't they drive them out? Was it a lack of faith? Was it a lack of obedience? What was it? We don't know, but the point is this, and we'll see this a few more times and draw your attention to it in these chapters, that when they did not drive out these people groups and these territories, as God told them to do, complete obedience... Do not cease, do not stop, do not make concessions, drive completely out the enemy, make no small compromise when they did not drive out the enemy fully and left a small pocket and thought, oh, well, I mean, it's just, I mean, we did most, but we can leave this little area. That little area of compromise and concession later on comes back and sinks in roots and it turns the tables on God's people. And then those enemies begin to rule over them rather than them ruling over their enemies. And it's just a good reminder for us, we have to be careful. If we don't drive out the enemies in our lives spiritually, things that do not belong, things that God wants us to conquer, we're putting ourselves in a very vulnerable place for ultimately the table starting to turn. And then those things that we left in our life that we should have gotten out, 
very soon can begin to take root and take control and rule over us instead. Well, chapter 16 then begins to give to us the lot that fell to Joseph from the Jordan by the Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east, the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. And that went from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border of the Archites to Adaroth and went down westward to the boundary of the Japhelites as far as the boundary of the lower Beth Haran to Gezer, and it ended at the sea, verse 4 tells us, so the children of Joseph, remember, they were sort of a, a dual tribe, Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph actually became the tribe of Joseph, the uh, uh, two sons, they took their inheritance. Now, verse 5 mentions the border of the children of Ephraim, and that gives us Ephraim's border all the way down to the rest of the chapter. Again, if you look on your map, you can see right in the central part of Israel, right in the central territory, the large area of Ephraim. It encompassed Bethel and Shiloh and some of those areas. And then you notice in verse 10, again, this reference and the people of Ephraim, it says, did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. Again, notice the mistake. They drove out people, drove out people, drove out people. But when it came to the Canaanites, it says they did not. Interesting. It doesn't say they, they could not. This says they did not. That is disobedient. They just did not drive them out. They left them there. And it seems maybe with some perspective of some personal advantage. Well, I mean, you know, it's not worth the hassle. In fact, you know, we'll just, we'll use them as slaves. Yeah, yeah, we can use this for our benefit. And they, like we do sometimes, rationalize somehow that disobedience can somehow be profitable. And isn't it crazy how we can do that sometimes? We, you know, we, we know that we should eliminate something, get it completely out of our life. And, and it's, well, well, I mean, there is some benefit to this. Uh, I mean, there's some advantage to, to leaving this. And, and, and well, we'll just put them to work for us. That's all. We'll put them to work for us. They'll, they'll be our forced labor and their desire to get ahead, either commercially or use them for some material advantage it actually turns around to bite them because they start out as forced laborers and slaves and later on these people rise up and strengthen and take root and they end up conquering and causing problems for the people of God. And this is why we have to be careful. We never want to make compromises with our flesh. Never, never, never. You crucify the flesh. You radically drive out the flesh. If not, that area will come and begin to enslave you ultimately. Well, chapter 17 then tells us of the lot or the territory of Manasseh, who was the firstborn of Joseph. And again, if you look above the area of Ephraim, the large territory of Manasseh directly above in kind of the central area. And remember, half the tribe of Manasseh was on the eastern side. The other half of the tribe was on the western side. You can see it in the center of your map there. If you look at verse 3, we get a reference here to Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, but he had only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they came near before Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and before the ruler, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our brothers. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, 
he gave them an inheritance among their father's brothers. So right in the midst of the giving of the territory to Manasseh, we're told of this man Zelophehad. This is a story back from Numbers chapter 27. This man Zelophehad had no sons. And typically it was cultural that the territory and the land, the family inheritance, would transfer to the sons, to the males in the family. Well, this man Zelophehad had nothing but daughters. And so because of that, they, in an attitude of faith, back in Numbers 27, understanding that God's not a God of partiality, that he's a God of equality, came to God, understanding his nature, and they came to Moses and said, listen, our father has no sons. We don't want to lose our tribal inheritance. Our father shouldn't suffer just because he doesn't have males to take his inheritance. Let his inheritance fall to us so it can stay within the family line and, and within the family and Moses doesn't know what to do. It says he seeks the Lord and God says what they say is right. What they're proposing is correct. And their stand in faith ends up establishing a principle in Israel that then becomes a statute that helps generations all the way down through history because they took a stand and spoke up for what they felt was right. God honored that beyond just their personal situation in a much greater way. And here we have many, many years later, these daughters, now they're in the land and they're saying, listen, God gave his promise and it may have been many years, but we believe God gave his promise and we believe God fulfills his promise. And so they come now asking for that territory and Joshua says, hey, if the Lord promised this, they deserve the land and now we see them inheriting the very thing that they believed that God would give to them and said that he would. Look down with me in verse 12 of this chapter. Again, notice another reference. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. And it happened when the children of Israel grew strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Mistake again. Why? Because those people were, it says, determined to dwell in the land. Listen, enemies are always going to be determined to dwell and to maintain the occupation that they do in our lives. And we can't become faint-hearted just because it's a struggle. Oh, well, you know, the easy things. I, I deal with the easy, but, but I mean, that's just too hard. It's just not worth the hassle. It's not worth the, you know, the argument with my husband or it. It's not worth the argument with my wife. It's not worth the, you know, the, the issue. It's going it to just, I mean, it's good enough. Just let that part be. No, you obey God completely. And there may be things and there may be areas where the enemy is determined to stay entrenched in some situation. But the Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he who's in this world. And there may be areas of your flesh, your sin nature and struggles in your life that just seem like, boy, they, they don't drop off as easier than others. But listen, you be more determined in a spirit of faith and a spirit of obedience that you are going to be determined to be faithful to the Lord until you utterly drive that out. You utterly deal with it and complete obedience. Be careful. Don't become faint-hearted and give up too easy. The Bible says, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season, we will reap if we don't lose heart. Just because you hit a, a, a block or, or strong resistance, don't let strong resistance stop you from full obedience in your spiritual life. Resistance exists. Sometimes it's harder than others. And here they make a compromise and unfortunately, they were disobeying God and did not utterly drive out the people. Verse 14, And the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot? 
and one share to inherit since we are a great people inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. So as the inheritance is coming now to the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, we're told here that they at some point, for whatever reason, come to Joshua now and, and they start to complain. And they say to Joshua, well, wait a minute, how, how come we're only getting the territory that we're getting? Now again, look on your map. That's about the whole central part of Israel. <laughs> I don't think that's a small territory. But what they're complaining about here, look, why are you only giving us the territory and one share since we are a great people? You sense a little bit of pride in their attitude. We're a great people. The Lord's blessed us again. Don't you remember our father Joseph, the prime minister at one point of Egypt? I mean, we're, we're, we're descendants of Joseph. We're great people. Certainly we deserve more because they think they're a little greater than what they really are. So Joshua says to them, verse 15, he answers and says to them, well, if you are such a great people, then go to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. So basically, Joshua challenges them and says, listen, if you're so great, then prove it. If you're so great and, and, and you believe that you deserve more, or you should be doing more, then he says, then, then prove it out. Go clear a space for yourself. And he sends them back into the very land that was already their land that they hadn't even occupied yet. And he says, listen, in your own territory, in the forest country where the giants are, he says, go clear out a space for yourself. You're asking for more territory. He says, you're not even being faithful in the space God gave you already. And boy, I'll tell you, this is a convicting reminder because sometimes we can be strangely overly concerned about new territories and new opportunities and bigger responsibilities. And sometimes God says, wait a minute, you're not even being faithful in what I've given to you. I've given you a fair share of responsibility and you're not even being faithful with that. You're not even dealing faithfully and being fruitful and fully occupying to the best of your ability the sphere of responsibility you've already been allotted, you've already been given. And the Lord would say, why are you asking for more when you're not even being faithful for what you have? And he says, prove yourself to be faithful where you are. Bloom where you're planted first, he says. The Bible says, he who is faithful in least will also be faithful in much. And when we're faithful in little, that's when we are entrusted with more. And so we have to be careful of this tendency of pride and discontent. And Joshua here, he, he sort of proves them out. He says, look, if you're so great, then go clear a place for yourself. Go show yourself to be what you believe. Verse 16, but the children of Joseph said, well, the mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley of there have chariots of iron. In other words, that's a hard area. Both those who are of Beth Sheehan and its towns of those who are of the valley of Jezreel or the valley of Megiddo is what's being described. So verse 16, you can write over that verse there if you're a little note taker, excuses. Because that's basically what they do. They complain about the area. They complain about the people there have chariots of iron. And instead of just humbling themselves and responding to the challenge that Joshua is giving to them, he's not trying to demoralize them. He's just saying, listen, if you want expansion in your life, then he says, then get active in what you're doing. Be more faithful. Take steps of faith. Be obedient right where you're at and, and be faithful in what's been entrusted to you. And when he tells them to do that, instead of humbly responding to that, they just start making excuses why they can't do that. 
oh, there, that's a hard area, chariots of iron, and the mountains are too difficult. And you know, it's often been said before, when a person becomes good at making excuses, they don't become good for much of anything else. Be careful. And a lot of times that can be the reason why we don't obey or we, we, we always find excuses why we can't be the father that we should be. We make excuses why we can't be the, the mother or the wife or the husband that we should. We make excuses why you know, we're not being faithful in the area that we've been entrusted. We make excuses why we can't you know, be productive. And, and God says, listen, if I've given that to you, I've given it to you because you can do it. I've entrusted you with that role, with those responsibilities, with those opportunities. And if God's allotted that to you, whatever that territory and sphere is, that territory for me and you, if he's allotted it to us, he will enable us to do it faithfully. But we need to be good stewards. And we need to get rid of making excuses and engage in what God has called us to do at times in our lives. And look, Joshua wants to encourage them, therefore. It says Joshua spoke to them in response to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, you are a great people, and you have great power, certainly not their own, but the power of the Lord. And you shall not have only one lot, but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it's wooded, you shall cut it down. To its furthest extent, it shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. So Joshua encourages him. He says, listen, d- d- don't, don't shrink below your potential. He says, you do have the potential to be great. You have the potential to do great things and great powers with you. And he says, you shall cut down that territory. You shall clear out that area. You shall defeat the giants. And here Joshua is trying to exhort and encourage them to do what? To take steps of action and obedience. And he's saying, you shall do this. Don't make excuses. He's saying, step forward. Ignore the excuses and rationalizations. And he says, get busy. Get productive, step in, begin to move forward. And he says, you shall experience victory and drive out those areas because the Lord will be with you and he'll help you to do the things that he's called and allotted for you to do. Again, the calling of God is the enabling of God. This was their territory. This was their calling. And if God calls us to anything in life, he provides the enablement and the power and the resources we need to do it faithfully but it's our responsibility to be good stewards and to be faithful through action and obedient steps. But chapter 18 then says, Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together, notice, at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there and the land was subdued before them. Now if you notice right in the middle of your map in the territory of Ephraim, you see Shiloh, centrally located. And at this point, they now set up the tabernacle of meeting. Remember the tabernacle of the they traveled around the wilderness. That was the tent where they ministered, where the priests conducted the sacrifices and there was the altar of incense and the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the place where they would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. This was the worship center, the mobile worship center for the nation of Israel. And now they set it up permanently for the first time in the land. This must have been an incredible day. For the first time now, they're setting up a permanent worship place and notice the tabernacle begins in the area of Shiloh. So it's centrally located. Everyone in the land can access it easily for times of worship to be able to go there for occasions. And it stays there for about 300 years uh, till ultimately it ends up being moved to the area of Jerusalem, we know, further on in the time of David. 
Well, verse 2 says, But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. So among the tribes, five at this point have received their allotment of land, their inheritance. But it says seven hadn't received their inheritance yet. Now, the question you should write in your notes or in your mind there is, why? How come only five received their inheritance? Why haven't the other seven received their inheritance? Well, the Bible answers for us. Look at verse 3. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given to you? Why did they not receive their inheritance yet? Why were they not experiencing God's will yet? One word the Bible says, neglect. Personal neglect. He says, How long will you neglect to go? And to take what God has given to you, to do what God has asked of you. Simply put, they were being negligent. They were just being lazy. They were finding reasons for disobedience. They were not faithfully fulfilling what God had told them to do. The land was theirs, but they were neglecting to do what God had told them to do. And we all have to be careful because at times in the spiritual life, we can be guilty of neglect. Neglect. We know what God's told us to do, but we neglect to obey. We neglect to act or we neglect to deal with something God tells us. He puts his Holy Spirit's conviction upon our heart. He says, I want you to do this. And we find reasons to neglect and delay. And and God says here, how long will you neglect? As long as you keep neglecting what I've asked you to do, you're not experiencing my best for you. You're missing the opportunities that could be available They were neglecting to possess the land. So the answer, verse 4, pick out from among you three men for each tribe and I will send them out and they shall survey the land according to their inheritance and bring it back to me and then divide it into seven parts. Now, he sends out a surveying team here at this point from the different tribes to divide up the land for the remaining seven tribes. And chapters 18 and 19 basically describe the boundaries of the different allotments that were given to each tribe. If you notice verse 11, there was the lot to the tribe of Benjamin. The first lot came to them. uh, And Benjamin's territory is described from verse 11, uh, pretty much down through the remainder of the chapter. And again, if you look on your map there, you can see Benjamin right at sort of the uh, northern border of the Dead Sea there, right next to Dan and right south of Ephraim, uh, right among that area there. Uh, Chapter 19 then tells us the second lot came to Simeon and Simeon's boundaries are described all the way down through verse 8 and you can look on your map as well and see where Simeon ended up being at. Simeon, as I said before, ended up being enclosed right within the tribe of Judah in the southernmost part of that area. Verse 9 says the inheritance of Simeon was included in the share of the children of Judah and ultimately they'll end up forsaking part of their territory because of some of the things that they do verse 10 the third lot then came to Zebulun and if you look up to the northern part to the uh, left there of the Sea of Galilee you can see the area of Zebulun where they ended up settling in at verse 17 the fourth lot then came to Issachar uh, and you can see Issachar there on your map basically directly south uh, to the area of Zebulun and sort of right at the southern border of the Sea of Galilee Verse 24, the fifth lot then came to Asher. 
according to their families. And you see Asher had this beautiful coastal region in the northern part of Israel there around the area of uh, Tyre and, and Phoenicia there, the beautiful area of Akko and southern of those. Uh, so they had, they had good surfing territory up there. So some of you might have really liked that area to be a part of the tribe of Asher. They were right along the Mediterranean coastline there, had some really beautiful areas they occupied. Verse 32, the sixth lot then came to Naphtali and their territory is described down through verse 39. And Naphtali, you can see, they had the area all around the Sea of Galilee predominantly. Beautiful area uh, in that territory there, all the way up through the, the northern area as well. And this was the area of Capernaum, the area where Jesus had his uh, ministry headquarters in that area there, what we call the Upper Galilee region where they were at. And then the seventh and final lot, verse 40, came to Dan. And you notice Dan, you see right to the left of Benjamin, again, down by the Dead Sea, they had an area there. But then ultimately, Dan, uh, because they ran into some of their own mistakes and problems, ended up sort of losing that territory. And if you look to the far north part of your map there, all the way up near the base of Mount Hermon, you see that Dan also ended up in that area as well in the far north, the area that's described there in verse 47. It says, beyond these, the children of Dan went up to fight against Lashem and took it. So they ended up going and taking that northern territory because of some problems they ran into down in the south. Well, verse 49, let's wrap it up, says, when they had made an end of dividing the land as an inheritance, according to their borders, the children of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun, according to the word of the Lord, they gave him the city which he asked Timnath Sirah in the mountains of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt in it. And these were the inheritance which Eliezer the priest and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel divided as an inheritance by lot in Shiloh there before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So they made an end of dividing the country. So take notice of two things. After all the people received their inheritance, then Joshua, their leader, receives his inheritance. This is a beautiful picture of, of servant leadership. Joshua's first and foremost was concern was to make sure that everyone else was okay and settled and stable in every way, spiritually and in every capacity. And then it was only after that that Joshua then it says they gave him a territory in the mountain regions there of Ephraim and then he took that area and he built it up and, and built it into a city for himself in that area. And a beautiful picture of servant leadership. Again, he did not use his position of leadership to benefit himself. He didn't come into the land and say, look, I'm the military general. I brought us into the land. So certainly I get first pick. It was the exact opposite. That's fleshly leadership. I hate to say it, that's modern political leadership. But spiritual leadership, when we lead anyway, is the exact opposite. It puts others first. It seeks to serve the interests of others. And of course, that's because that's the nature of Jesus' leadership. And Jesus, who puts us before himself, and Jesus, who tells us to consider others better than ourselves, to look out not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, to esteem others before ourselves. And Joshua here, a beautiful picture of Jesus in his heart and his temperament as the land is divided up. So praise the Lord. Let's stand together. You guys navigated through all that geography lesson in church tonight. Let's, let's pray and 
worship the Lord.